0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change.
1: I started to learn what detoxes were, that they could be separate from going to rehab, but you could Mm. also get excuses from them to not be fired from your job. I started to understand how that process worked. So (gasps) Um. yes, yes, use the system. So that's what I did. I thought, you know what, I'll go on a six to to ten day bender. And I'll go to work some of these days. But on the last couple of days, I won't go to work. I'll drink really hardcore. Then I'll go to detox. Detox will say, hey, yeah, he was real fucked up these last few days. Just forgive him.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Game, and I am your host. Today, we have Charlie Gray, Charlie is a mid-30s gay man living in the Midwest. For years, he suffered as a high-functioning alcoholic experiencing chronic relapse. On July 8th of 2020, Charlie entered sobriety and began penning his memoir as part of his healing process, At Least I'm Not the Frog, a zany memoir of alcoholism and recovery. His book begins shortly after graduating from Drury University at the age of 22, bright-eyed, hopeful, and eager to become an Academy Award-winning actor. At the time, he was ravenous for experience, which he found, albeit not quite what he anticipated. Wandering from corporate banking to global travel, always with a bottle of vodka in tow, Charlie became privy to the glittering underbelly of an addictive lifestyle. Fearing this was his ultimate fate, he fled to a series of no less than 54 rehabs, detoxes, and psychiatric wards, all of which is recollected in his book. At Least I'm Not the Frog is currently trending on Amazon's hot new releases in the substance abuse category. Charlie resides in his quaint hometown in Missouri with his family, friends, and cat Klaus. These days, he can usually be found searching for epic, inspiring moments or updating his blog on maintaining sobriety and clarity, aptly titled, At Least I'm Not the Frog Too." Oh my goodness. This is one of those. I had so much fun. Charlie is a hoot and 54 different programs. 54. I mean, that blows... Many of us, all of us, out of the water. And it's a really incredible story about not giving up, continuing to fall on your face and getting up again until something changes. Charlie got sober during the pandemic. We talk about that. We talk about his loss of his mother early on when he was 13. And we talk about what it feels like to have alcohol calling to you in your head towards the end of the episode. So, I hope you enjoy this. I hope it is informative and fun, and I'll see you at the end. All right, episode 118. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey.
1: This haircut? I think it's my best haircut. It's your best haircut. <laughs> Ever. Ever ever. The expression, the red shirt. I'm feeling like
0: you got to bring it back. There's like wisps in the front. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell me this photo, what is happening? You have the most beautiful blue eyes. What is happening in this photo where you look like you're headed into the Spanish Inquisition and somebody, maybe a jailer (laughs) decided to shave your head, but they missed a few spots. As they were yeah. going quickly to get you to your interrogation.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, let's use that
0: story.
1: Okay. That's a better okay, story. Good, good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Or you were a sheep being sheared, and I don't know, I could go on. I could continue this. What <laughs> actually happened?
1: Well, Ashley, it was a lot of drugs and some booze, you know, you know. Amen to that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. No, it was great. It was uh, my best friend from college. She, yes. um We were on the back porch of my fraternity house and just real, Mm. can I, can I cuss on this? Yeah, you can. Right on. We were just really fucked up, dude. Yeah. Like really fucked up. And I had this play coming up and we had to like shave my head and we were just like, fuck it. It doesn't open for like three days. Be free. Be yourself. Let's do this. And so it was.
0: So like you just left all the areas that wanted to still like hang in there before the show date. I think she was just honestly trying to do a good
1: job. And then oh. we just had to make up that we were like free bohemians. Um, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, there was a lot of um, weed and alcohol, I know, definitely yeah. involved. And I yeah. think at some point it was just more important to smoke the blunt than it was to finish like shaving finish my head. the
2: haircut. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get you that. I,
0: I feel that very deeply and I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> such a great photo. So you got sober for the last time. I'm just saying it's for the last time because it is for the last time, aren't we, right? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am, yes, that's ma'am. right. Okay, so you got sober in 2020.
1: Yes, amidst the pandemic. Like There's... I'd seen there was another podcast that you had of someone that spoke about that. Yeah, but yeah right, yeah, right in the middle, I. Um. that's when I got sober.
0: So 2020, Here's here's as someone with 15 years sober, here's what's going through my head, okay? So I'm like, oh my God, this, if there was ever a time to be drinking, it would be a worldwide pandemic while I'm locked in my house with my three-year-old twins and my husband, right? Like that is One with my, things. you know, that in my head space. So then I talk to these people who get sober, like yourself during 2020. And they're like, I knew I had to stop. Like this was my time to stop. So I find it very interesting and, and enlightening that in my head, a worldwide pandemic, the first thing I thought of was like, well, shit, what else do you do? There's no coping skill for Mm -hmm. this. And then Mm -hmm. all these people who were like, now is the time, because I can't go on this way by myself. And what was your mindset that got you to think that, you know, this is the right time. This is my bottom.
1: You know, for me, it happened in the middle of the pandemic, really in July. And I had drank some in the pandemic, not as a coping mechanism to deal with that, that, you know, for me, that was a peripheral thing. I was still so self-absorbed in my alcoholism that it was a happening around me, but I wasn't exactly conscious of it. I didn't become aware of it until I became sober. So I didn't have that sort of pull. I had a pull of 10 years of it's all I knew and did. And right. I was so tired of being crushed by it that finally I was able to have this moment where I woke up one morning in late June and I just knew that I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't have it in me. I was so broken. I had nothing around me. And for whatever reason, my higher power was able to just get in that day and really kind of get its hooks in me. I did relapse after that. I I had this glorious epiphany and then I ran to the bottle a couple days. um, And that was my last a couple of days later and that was my last relapse and it was just terrible i i cried getting the vodka i cried drinking the vodka mm. it just it it was it wasn't able to do for me what it had done before i could not achieve a blackout i knew what i was doing i was aware of the depravity in my life and i couldn't get away from it so july 8th i just thought well then we have to be done with that i don't know what we're going to do but we have to be done with that. And that's when I really started to look at myself and forgive myself. And a couple months later, the writing happened. And it was through writing about the 10 years, 11. It was really 12, but we'll, we'll call it 11. 11. <laughs> We'll just call it eleven and be good with it. All right. Every
0: sentence the years in Greece. I know it it gets thirteen, worse. but it could have been fourteen. Listen, it was probably twenty. <laughs> no,
1: no, it was eleven toxic years. And in writing about that, I was able to from like a bird's eye view, yeah. The first time, see it and be like, Oh yeah, okay, duh, of course you drank. You this you had no coping skills and no guidance and no help. Of course you drank. And I stopped. I stopped condemning myself through the writing process and I found myself, I healed. And I was so thankful when I was finished. I I thought, you know, even if, if absolutely nothing comes from this, what it has given me is just the most beautiful renewal on life. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't know that that was something I could have. I honestly believed it was something that I would never have. I thought that I was always going to relapse and just end up like, my grandfather and die at a pretty young age of cirrhosis. And it'd be pretty fucking awful, you know, and I had come to terms with that. What I had not come to terms with was getting sober, writing a book and this happening. So this
0: is just like, I don't know, man, it's insane and it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And I'm so thankful.
0: So uh, one thing is you like, so I always say I'm a slow learner, right? Because I went to a lot of treatment centers but you, <laughs> you, my friend, just
1: a few, just a few,
0: you might be a real slow learner. Cause you <laughs> you went to 54 different programs. Yeah. I'm just yeah, going to say you get a round of applause for that because that looks, that takes some work. Fucking takes, a, man. That takes some work. Like you, I'm impressed. You had time to drink between programs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that a lot, actually. And you would be surprised what this
2: little gay boy can throw down in a
0: few days, man. I,
2: I believe it. Yeah. Oh my
0: god, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. So it's a lot. It's huh? a lot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you you grew up in Missouri. Yes. Okay, and you knew your whole life that you were gay, like how long, how, like you, when do you first remember thinking I'm attracted to boys or there's something different or like that, any of the, the, the thoughts, when do you first remember?
1: You know, this is my favorite question. And this is a question that I have answered really since I was 18 when I came out. And, um, I love this question because it, it, it opens up the opportunity to talk about being gay and what that means and how gay people identify. I was very fortunate to, you know, be a product of the 90s. So it wasn't, I, I grew up in a culture where it wasn't as scary. Yep. So I, I knew from a very early age, you know, what I like to say is the first time that you noticed a boy or a girl, whatever that may have been or yeah. looked like for you, at that age, I was noticing a, a boy you know, and I knew that I was different. I knew that there was this stigma around it, but I also knew that it was, that it was okay. I had enough, if I want to, you know, take like a, a therapeutical view of it, I had enough love and support as a child to yeah. know that, that I was okay and how I was. And it was never something I shied away from. I very much embraced it. I just wasn't, in an area where I could just be gay, you know? Missouri so,
2: just doesn't have the, doesn't
0: scream. It doesn't, no, doesn't, doesn't scream, scream open gays. Open yeah, no, no,
1: no, no. There is a lot more love and support than you'd think, yeah. but, but especially back in the early 2000s, it, it wasn't like it is now. And when I went to college and I came out at 18, I was like, no more, I am free now, like I shall be gay. But, <laughs> 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 but, um, it had always been there. I'd always known it. it. It had never, it had never, I had never thought of it as my identifying or defining feature. Mm. So later in life, when I would come across this and especially when I was trying to act and, you know, I have a gay voice, I have a higher voice. I, I'm not a manly man. When I would be confronted with that, I would be like, this is so strange to me. I am so much more than just gay, you know, but that's just because it had, I'd always known it,
0: always, right, right. That's a really right. long answer for a very simple. No, question. it's a great it's <laughs> a gr- it's a great answer. You have some trauma, early trauma around age thirteen, um, yes. that probably is more identifying than mm-hmm. than being gay. Uh, definitely. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, when uh, a couple weeks after I had turned thirteen, my mother passed away. she she had a seizure at our house. And, um, just in a series of days that progressed to a stroke, which ultimately left her without any brain waves, And then, you know, she, she passed away. So it happened so quickly. And right before that stroke hit my sister and dad and I were coming back from seeing a movie. And I talk about this, some in my memoir, um, how I didn't want my sister, what I walked in on and saw was, was her having that stroke. And it was very graphic and, scarring and and that image will never leave me yeah yeah but I knew a lot of things happened in that moment though it was it's a very surreal moment it gives me goosebumps anytime I talk about it I knew that I didn't want my sister to see that like she could not see that she was too young so I shielded her from that but I think I also in that moment was like okay like something really bad is happening and you you now have to grow up yeah the The feeling of being a parent would come a little bit later, a couple months after mom died, but the the foundation of of that feeling was that day. And I think that day rocked me. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it for many years, but through a lot of therapy, I can look back and say that it really affected me. It really scarred me. For a long time, I felt like it was an insult to my mom to be like, no, you dying fucked me up. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want... I didn't want her to feel that way or think that, or what have I done? Anyways, it was just, it was hard for me to cope with that. And I did turn to substances pretty early on, you know, sex and substances and drugs, and then um, quickly corrected my behavior once I saw how that impacted my sister and Mm. the sense of parentification that I had developed over a course of the, the few months after mom dying.
0: What's the age difference? between you and like 6 years
1: and um like 9 months like almost 7 years yeah yeah so she would have been 7 when all this was happening and and I was she had just turned 7 I was 13 maybe it's not I don't know what it is the age difference we'll say around 7 math yeah, was never yeah. my She's, strong but theory. she was
0: <laughs> she was young she was do you do we know why mom had a seizure or had that happened before was this related to anything or just total total blindside
1: um we found out like a year or so later in conversations that she had slipped and fallen like maybe Mm. a week or a couple weeks before that so i'm sure that that led up to it but initially no we had no like mom's totally fine
0: and then she's not fine
1: and then she's not fine and she's gone and it was a four-day process you know and so it just, it rocked our world. It rocked my dad's world. You know, they had yeah. met when they were 16. He had fallen in love with her mm. and like told his best friend, like, I'm going to marry this woman. I think he had just like seen her from behind at that point too. So that was like his whole world. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound as good as, as romantic <laughs> as I wanted it. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm like, yeah, He's like, great. Thank that's you. Romantic. Thank you. Turn that moment. I love, it. Oh, I love so it. Sorry, it. I love it. I'll take it.
0: I hope my husband says that about me.
1: Right. She looked good from behind. Um, <laughs> No, anyways, so it was just, it was hard for him. He had loved her for more than half of his life. And so we were all just rocked by that man. And we didn't emotionally heal from it for years.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, when I think about it from being the perspective of being a mother for what it's worth, I have two little boys and if I died, I would expect that that would fuck them up. Like... Whether yes. I chose to or not, my expectation it would not. I would, of course, not want that to happen. But I would. The expectation, frankly, if it didn't fuck them up, you'd <laughs> be a little offended. <laughs> if I didn't fuck them up, I was really doing something wrong, yeah. right? Because like, what the fuck? Okay. Yeah, yeah, like okay. shit. Do you know how many times I wiped your ass? Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, like, you... I think I can understand, like, that guilt of saying, like, I don't want to put this on her, but also at the same time, it, it... you know, frankly, that's a really normal reaction to losing a parent. Yeah, uh, you know, particularly at such a pivotal moment in 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 that way, so shocking, and yeah, I, I would I would imagine that it was super difficult for your dad, and and that the mm-hmm. the home life completely shifted as you were all trying to figure that out. Did you take Did you have a first drink in that time frame?
1: Yes. Yes. I had a first drink, uh, a couple months after my mom died, I befriended this girl down the street and, and I make it clear in my writing too, that I, I do not put my actions on this friend. You know, this is, this is not me saying oh, I met her and then this shit up. And it's like, no, I know that I did this. And I was most likely the instigator. She was just an outlet for my anger and my fear and my grief. So we, and she was having a rough time in her life. So we were just combustible together, you know? And it's like, yeah, let's, let's drink, let's do drugs. Let's vandalize our teacher's Jeep, you know, and let's have sex unprotected. Like, what the fuck, bro? You're gay. Yes. (laughs) Talk
0: about a, talk about a fuck you, right? Like I'm not even, I'm, I, I'm I'm denying that I'm gay. Like, I'm just going to go against. Strange I'm gonna, time. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to just go against everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I was
1: broken. I was broken. Yeah. Though. You know, yeah. I was just broken.
0: And and then one day,
1: my sister, I noticed that she looked. Oh, it makes me so emotional. I noticed that she looked really lost. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, now this is your fault. You've been running amok, all fucked up. Well, her mom died too, you know? Yeah. So that, like, that fixed me for a hot minute. And... I did not touch anything. I didn't have the desire to, I, I, I completely switched tracks. I was like, okay, I am not going to be the fuck up that is devastated the rest of his life because his mother died. I am going to be something. And so I set out on that trajectory. So my alcoholism was so surprising when it just crushed that in my early twenties, um, but I was never coping. That's not coping either. You know, that's just a classic response as well to like, oh, now I shall be perfect and I shall assume her spot and I will cook and I will clean and I will make sure my sister is emotionally, you know, well. And I couldn't do any of that because I was thirteen and fourteen and fifteen years old. So right, it was the best I was doing the best, best I could. could. Yeah, 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 yeah. you were, yeah. with
0: what you had. It's interesting. My, um, I have two younger sisters, and I when I was in treatment, like by the time I ended up in treatment, I was so shut down. I would use dissociation as a, as a coping mechanism. And when I got to treatment, one of the only ways I could connect to my feelings was putting my sister in my shoes. So my younger sisters thinking if it's, you know, I would talk to the therapist and they would say, you know, um, you know, can you see how horrible this is that that happened to you? And I'm like, no, it's not really a big deal, or you know, whatever. And they would say, "Okay, pretend it's your sister that this happened to." And I would sob, just absolutely. And I had to do for the better part of a year, I had to do therapy as if all my life happened to my sister because it was the only way I could connect. And when I think about that, because that's what you're describing, right? It's like we have this, We love and care so deeply for our, you know, our family, our loved ones, our siblings, that if harm any of those thoughts, whether it's us or other people coming to them, we can connect to that. But we have this this hatred of ourselves or this distraction or whatever you want to call it, this hole that if it's us... It's all self-destruct. It's all it's all disconnect. There's no connection there. And really interesting. We can be really. It tells us how the brain, how specifically the brain says, "I'm going to connect to this, and I'm not going to connect to this." Yeah, because it's happening simultaneously without you knowing. Yeah, because you're you just like, okay, I'll just focus. And and you know, I tried to be like, it's very embarrassing to honestly at this point. But you know, I remember thinking I that I was. Stepping into a parent role, and that I was helping them, like things like showing them how to use alcohol and drugs in a safe way with me, or like yeah. some other Responsible. shit. Responsible. Oh God! Some, I some did it with shit. my sister too. Yeah, no, I get but, it. And I'm like, wow, I was really like in my head, I am stepping into that parent role and do, trying to take care of them. And you know, the actuality of it is that it's just like. Hot ass man. I mean, literally, just complete shit show. But we have our brains are operating at. You can see when you look back, it's like this is the best I could do at the time. You can see the intention, right? You can see, but as we start using longer and longer, I feel like that intention, that that visibility, the visibility of the intention, starts to slip away, and we're not able to participate in anything that's even approximating looking like we give a shit. Yes right yes so you you go off to college you and and you worked in um you were a broadway actor right
1: uh, and, oh God! I wish. Um, no, I was trained. <laughs> yes, let's let's use that. As you my were blurb. trained, yeah, exactly. You <laughs> I were was trained. trained, yeah, by an actor that was on Broadway for many years in the seventies and eighties. And I went to a a school here in Missouri in Springfield called Drew University. And he had just recently moved back to Springfield. His wife had been on Broadway as well, um, so they were just like the real deal, legit. You know, stage. Actors, Um, and I just thought I've spent four years being trained by this man. Of course, everyone's going to want me. Yeah. And I, I tried to act for about a year and a half. It didn't work out. And I started working at a bank because you have to do something at some point you have to have a paycheck. Right. Um, and the bank and that's has I gave- money. So. And the bank has money. Yeah. I'll go get their money. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You're like, if I can't be an actor, I'm going to be, go to the bank.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to go to the bank and be the best damn banker there is. Um, No. Yeah, I did. And I, I did really well in that environment, but it wasn't what I was cut out for. It's not what fed my soul, you know? And so it was just like, the drinking started really bad after college. It got really bad when, the acting career did not work out. And then as soon as I stepped into the bank, man, it was just like drinking every night, drinking in the morning, drinking in the afternoon so that I'm not shaken, so that I can function. And I survived that way for years. And it was terrible. You know, I got into a relationship with another alcoholic and he was just terrible as well.
0: Mm. When did you go... So we have to like drop in this 54 treatment centers thing. Yeah. When did you go to your first treatment center? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's just like (laughs) map that shit out. Um, because, okay. So you, 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 you go to college, right? How old are you now?
1: I, I just turned thirty-five last June. I can walk you through it. You want me to walk you through it? Because girl, it's confusing as shit. I know. Oh,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit me with all the hit me with all the spots. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, he it. met a guy. He went. Started a bank. He's giving probably... me too much information. Yes. No, no. I'm like, I'm like, where, where, where's the time? Like, you're not that, you're not that old. I don't know. You know. So, I'm just. I'm like, maybe he went for a day and then left. Uh, I've done that. Yeah. Um, so no, how I... did? How did you start going to treatment? Like, what? yeah, yeah, great story. So, um, <laughs> my <laughs> here we go,
1: settle in, everyone. I'm gonna settle take in. you on a S- journey, take us, yes. Yeah, so I went to my first treatment center in 2013. I had been to 13. Couple- okay, where, where are you in life? And life, I am with the boy. I had just actually, I had just broken up with the boy. So I had, you know, been working at the bank, at corporate in downtown Kansas City, met the boy. He's great. He's a drunk. Perfect. Let's do drugs too, because that's <gasps> yes. smart. No, that's yeah. a
0: really good bonding exercise. Yeah. Oh, you're so great. Yeah. And let's- Okay, so so you're a few <laughs> years out of college here.
1: Yeah, a few years out of college here, about 24, 25, 26 is whenever it was just so bad in the bank for those years. And I get into uh, doing a lot of drugs, drinking a lot, left the job at the bank, just living at the apartment with him and this other friend of his. And I decide this is terrible. This is not what was supposed to happen. I should Mm. call my cousin uh, in Oregon who has been through treatment and knows about this. And she can tell me what to do and I'm going to fly out there. That's perfect. So I go out to Oregon, all fucked up and I get there and she helps me get and into treatment so You can't get sober before you go my... to treatment. No, I actually was like, told her, I had to go to a detox before I could get into this treatment center, of course, because that's okay. how it works. I didn't know at the time. I now can tell you fucking everything, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't know at the time. I run so, a treatment center. You could probably tell yeah. me more.
1: I, I, yeah, I know a lot of shit, man. Um, but so yeah, I, I remember telling her on the way of the detox, like, they won't admit me if I come in sober, like we've got to stop and get a pint. So that's what we did. And that was my first experience with treatment. It was pretty, pretty gruesome. It was like 30 guys living in this really small, it wasn't very small, but it was this house essentially. And there was like three or four of us to a room. And it was a lot of old educational videos videos from like the eighties and nineties. And we watched a lot of cars. Um, Mm. That's what we did. Always helpful. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Always helpful. So that was my first, right. Watch those cars. You'll never drink again. Mm -mm. So (laughs) so that was my first experience with treatment. So I was like, well, fuck that. Not doing that. Little did I know. And I didn't for many years. I didn't do anything. I just drank and drank and drank and drank. And around uh, 16, 17, I started to learn what detoxes were, that they could be separate from going to rehab, but you could Mm. also get excuses from them to not be fired from your job. I started to understand how that process worked. So Um. yes, yes, use the system. So that's what I did. I thought, you know what, I'll go on a six to to 10 day bender and I'll go to work some of these days. Okay. But on the last couple of days, I won't go to work. I'll drink okay. really hardcore. Then I'll go to detox. Detox will say, hey, yeah, he was real fucked up these last few days. Just forgive him. And they did for whatever <laughs> just, reason. Just
0: forgive him. Yeah. They, and they always did. I don't know. So so so, so that you, perpetuated okay. cycle. Let, sorry. I just want to make sure I have this correct. So you have a job. Yes. You go on a 10-day bender. Last few days, you don't go to work you go to detox before getting it approved before getting, so so you go to D de- do you, do you go to work and say, I have to go to detox or do you no. go to detox? Okay. You go to detox no. and then you call detox calls work and says, you fucked up and hired this guy who needs detox every week. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and now uh, you're stuck with him. Yeah. Now you're stuck with him because the laws protect him. So anyway, yes. long story short. Okay. So Charlie's in detox <laughs> and, He'll be back to work next week. Aren't you excited? Kind of that kind of thing. Very much, yes. Okay, and then who pays for this detox? Uh, my insurance, naturally. Okay, okay. So, th- how often were you uh, hitting up the detox spa? Uh, the detox spa. It,
1: it varied based on the year. At my worst, I was going. You know, every. One to two months at my best, I was going every four to six months. One to two months? Sometimes two in a month. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when I was living in Kansas later in my life when I was living in Kansas City and I had access to this one detox facility. Because I was constantly manipulating when I was in these facilities, wasn't I? I was constantly feeding them a line of bullshit so earnestly and so effortlessly after a while that I tricked them into being on my side when they should not have been, but they didn't know. I knew all the right things to say and do. So yeah, when I showed up, and it's also money in their pocket, let's be real. But anyways.
0: You're a Broadway
1: trained actor. Yes. I had some skills. You had some skills.
0: Not your fault that you know, you had to use them in the detox center.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just, what a sad life too, you know, like what a sad fucking life, bro. And that's why I had to rise above it, but that's not where we're at. We're at here at the detoxes. So <laughs> we're still down. We're still down. Below. We're okay. still down right now, but yeah. So that's, that was the deal, man, is get them on your side. And, um, and it did work out because if you have your, um, Im- Employee, employers and everyone thinking that like this poor guy. Oh my God.
0: Did they, is that really what they thought? Yeah. They really felt badly for you? Yeah, man. They weren't like, oh my God.
1: Probably behind closed doors. My managers were like, what the fuck?
0: Okay. But to my face. They were really, yeah, no, no. So yeah. I think the real question that everybody wants to know is who's your insurance? Uh, several.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> Which one you want? Do you yeah. want to know where you can go with it?
2: Because I can yeah, tell you yeah, all yeah, that.
0: I would like to know how you went twice a month, and they the, your your insurance has covered that. Yeah,
1: and I would go without insurance too. Let's be real; yeah. there were times in my life when I didn't have insurance, yeah. and you you run the risk of racking up those medical bills. I didn't care. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean. What did your drinking look like? So like when you'd go hard in the paint, what did that like, were you having DTs coming off of them? Was this like you were drinking a gallon of vodka a day? What did did that look like for you?
1: Yes. At the height of my drinking, what I maintained for several years was about a gallon every day and a half.
0: Okay, So I'd have to
1: re-up about every day and a half. And so drinking that way got me to the point of you know, atrophying, not really being able to function, having to be in the ICU. So that was the height. That was the worst. But what I maintained for most of the time, we're talking about a pint to a pint and a half a day. And then when I would go hard would be probably a fifth, Okay. Um, okay. So there were there were two kind of levels. There was when I was at my absolute worst, and then there's where I yeah. my sweet spot where I lived right. most of my life. Right. And yeah. Yeah. A lot of vodka.
0: So a lot, yes. A lot of vodka. Um, so you 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 where's the time? How how many places do you think you went before you started to go to have you know the seeds started get planted as as of some of this stuff, like maybe I have a problem. Uh, maybe this like wh- is there a point at which you're not ready, but you understand that you have a real problem?
1: Yes. I knew pretty much from 2013 and that first time going into treatment, I knew that there was a problem. What I didn't know and couldn't see at the time and for many years is that I was never willing to do the work. I could acknowledge that there was an issue with my drinking and I could explain to you my thought patterns and why there was an issue with my drinking. What I could not do is once I got out of detox or out of a treatment center was say, hey, rather than fall back on these piss." poor coping responses that I've developed, I'll instead go to a meeting. I'll instead journal. I'll instead call. I never did any of that. I just didn't do the work. I didn't care for a a portion of it, I'm sure. Um, So it was always there. I always knew it. I did not act on it until really the end of 2019 is when I really was like, okay, there's something shifting in me. I feel different. And then that kind of snowballed into the, the sober date in, in 2020. But it's, it's been there for. Her. I think what I say in the book is like, it had been in the back of my mind the whole time. I just never wanted to tether myself to it because then it became real. And as long as I wasn't tethered, then it wasn't real. I didn't have to acknowledge it. I didn't have to deal with it, really deal with it. You know, I could go to these places and it looked like I was, but I never really had to do the work until I wanted to save my soul and I did the work.
0: Right, right. It's funny how it's funny how we. Like what it takes to do, like what it takes for us to enact these things that are relatively like, God forbid you say like that made it real. Like the 54 treatment centers don't make it real, but going to meetings that shit will make it real. You know, it's our brains just operate so differently and interestingly and often conveniently, right? It convinces Mm -hmm. us that like, this is the narrative that works for us. Oh, yeah. The coping skills thing is huge and I think um I don't know about you but for me I you know act my way, I had to act my way into new thinking. I could not think my way into new acting personally. I you know I I know that's not the case for for everybody. Did you which kind of direction did you go in with that in terms of getting these new coping skills?
1: What I did
0: I would say I
1: I don't think I acted or I think I just finally surrendered Mm. and then implemented everything I had been taught. Because you see, what you get from 54 treatment centers Mm. is an amazing knowledge of therapeutic tools Mm. and both scientific and holistic. Uh, So what I had to do was just be like, you have had access to this insane amount of knowledge Do something with it. So, like, implement it on yourself. And so that's what I did. I just thought, okay, I've been told long enough of like, if I'm starting to feel this way or if I'm starting to lean this way, here's A, B, C, and D that I can try, that I can go through before I have to fall to the bottle. So, that's really what I did for the first time was just use the huge fucking tool bag I'd been (laughs) carrying around, but never (laughs) opened. Finally cracked that bitch open and she told me a few things and I did a few things and it worked. And I was bolstered by that. I thought, Oh wait, I I can do this. I didn't ever think that I could. So let me try this and then I'll try that. And Hey, this is working. And like, Whoa, shit's real dude. Like you can get sober. And that's just kind of how it went for me.
0: Did you use one thing I'm working on now in my recovery is, Trying. So I, I, I like to overwhelm everything, myself, everything, everyone, all things. And one thing I'm working on is if, if I want to make a change, I'm implementing one change and then focusing really hard on that as opposed to trying to put, trying to change all these things about, you know, all these coping mechanisms. I know that some people can, you know, they, they, you know, quit everything at once and then they, you know, boom they're off to the races i had to you know i still had to smoke for a while and i still had to do these things what what did that look like for you do you with your coping skills did you do a bunch at once did you do one at a time did you how, how did you implement them into your life
1: in the very beginning in those first 3 or 4 weeks of getting sober this last july in 2020 july 8th 2020 I had to try everything. I had to distract myself with everything. So if it was listening to music and journaling for 30 minutes so that I wouldn't drink, but then I became antsy because I couldn't do that, then it was call somebody, then I'm going to do that. So in the beginning, I had to do fucking everything to just stay away from the bottle. Because for me, it's really the first five weeks. If I can make that first five weeks, then we can start to maybe make some work And I felt like this time after I made really that first month and a half and I looked around and I thought, okay, you've come this far, you've done this 3000 times, what are we going to do differently that will keep you sober? And that's when it very much became for me about implementing, yes, one thing at a time, focus on one change. When you wake up in the morning, what is the one goal you have for today? Let's accomplish that. And then we can move on to the next. And then a couple months after that, I was able to sit down and write a five year plan of like what I wanted to accomplish. And so that very much now breaks it down for me, you know, just one thing at a time, just take the next step forward and I'll eventually get to where I want to be.
0: Did you use a 12 step program or any other kind of recovery support?
1: I have used a lot of 12-step. I am very, very indoctrined in 12-step. I've worked the steps in my past. I've worked the steps to four or five. And then this time getting sober, I have not worked them with a sponsor, but I've pulled from them what I've needed. Uh, I read the big book a lot. I read the back of the big book a lot. That was always it gave me much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It just lifted my spirit so much mm-hmm. reading that back of the book. I always thought, why do we pay so much attention to the first one? It's 164, right? Mm-hmm. Why do we pay so much attention to that? And we don't really spend, or I couldn't ever find in all my travels and meetings, ones that were like, we're just going to work on the back of the book for a year rather than do the, you know, I'm on a tangent here. So that was kind of my program. It was very 12-step based but not your traditional I'm going to get a sponsor I'm going to go through the 12 steps. I I had done that. It didn't seem to work out well for me, but that does not mean I think that it does not work. I think it works wonders. I am a huge advocate for the the anonymouses is, is what I call them because I love NA, I love CA and I love AA. I love
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups and there's no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator Ashley Joe Brewer AJB if you will AJB hi hi okay you're a big fan of community you attend community support group meetings give why 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 should people care
2: i absolutely love community because it creates a community and I know that sounds funny, but It truly provides a space for anyone and everyone no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, It's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is. Everyone is accepted no matter where they are in life, no matter what they are recovering from. And I think that's what's beautiful about community. Oh, I love it. And I I yes,
0: I 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one whatever, whatever it is. You are welcome and you're welcome in this place and it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support and it's free to anyone. You go to LionRock.life.com. And there is a tab with community meetings. There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out communitylionrock.life. Click that community tab. For people who are listening, who maybe a family member who has a loved one who has gone through a lot of treatment centers, and they're like, What I'm, you know, I think about it. I don't know if you think about it this way too, but, you know, maybe you put your little sister actually, maybe that would be good is like, think about it from the perspective of I think about it with my kids, like, I'm putting, I'm helping them get into treatment and, um, you know, they keep relapsing, right. And how frustrating and defeating that would feel. And yet you are an example of how all these treatment centers that, and, and I, frankly, I'm an example. I just, I, I didn't get in, didn't do quite the amount that you did impressive. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm still sub 10. Um, shit. I know, I know. Next life. Um, Next life. But, <laughs> goals. <laughs> but goals. Goals. Life goals. Um, but, uh, the, how does a family member think about... Two, I guess it's a two-part question. How does a family member think about what is going on in your head? At like, What does it sound like in your head when you get out of treatment and you don't want to take a drink, but you do want to take a drink, but you don't want to take a drink, and you do want to take a drink and you end up drinking? And then the other half of that question is... What hope, maybe both of us can come up with something, can we give family members who are struggling with the relapses and struggling to find hope, struggling to not give up on their loved ones when they aren't getting it every time, et cetera?
1: Yes. This is a great question for me because I have had these conversations with my family recently and being sober of learning, what did it do to you when I was on this insane you know, journey where I was gone sometimes for a week or two on end. No one would know where I was at or what was going on. You never, when you're the alcoholic or the addict, you never in that moment of your active addiction are thinking, what do my action, what are the ripple effects of my actions? Because, and I could get into the science of the brain and why we behave the way we do, but that's a whole nother topic, but it's because when you're in the moment, your your priority set is I've got to get fucked up. If I don't get fucked up, I won't live. So we've heard addicts and alcoholics say that, but we don't really know what that means. How can that make sense? How can you let all of this fall to the wayside just because you've got to get fucked up? And I'm hoping that through my story, I explain that it's so much bigger than just my processing in this moment. My processing in this moment is is so distorted because of everything that built it, you know, because of of what happened to me and, and, and the mechanisms that I created along the way. And to get myself out of that is not an overnight process. And for some of us, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of help and it is very frustrating and it seems like you're not making any progress. But if that individual continues to get up and try to do something. For a moment, all they may know that's good and right is to relapse, go to a meeting, go to a detox, go to a treatment facility. At least I'm, I'm doing something. I'm crying out for help. At least I'm doing that. That's not easy to swallow for someone that's not going through it. It's like, mm-hmm. you've been there, just get your shit together. But life, that's just not life. That's, that's our expectations that we are projecting onto life of what we want for that individual. I did have an opportunity in a treatment center in Utah to actually speak to a whole group of family members. Um, We Mm. were doing a family session, and I felt like the family members were really ganging up on this one patient um, because They had stumbled quite a bit, and I thought multiple family members were taking their frustrations out on their own individual, you know, on this one person. So I was like, it's very important that you stand up for this person, but it's very important that you do not insult or demean the family members because what they're going through is just as hard as what you're going through. It's just different. And so that's what I tried to to help them see was like, you have to, in your mind, break it away and realize that this person is not doing this to you. They're not doing this for you. They're just working with what the tools that they have, and they're not very good tools. So you'll need to to stand with them rather than kind of get caught up in your own frustration of, of how you want the situation to play out. For my sister, it was really hard because she felt very alone when I was going to all these sinners, And, and that's the reality of it as well as there's going to be, there is no magic answer that I can give or, or meeting that we can go to, to say that life is tough and it's going to be really rough and you're going to hurt people. But as long as you're trying, as long as you continue to move forward, celebrate that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a zigzagged answer, but.
0: What, what did it sound like for you when you'd get out of treatment and, You'd be sober for a period of time and then, or, 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 you know, not even a period, but you'd be, you'd, you'd get out of treatment with all the resolve and then it'd happen again. What did, what did the, I like to try to describe this for people or have this description out there for people. And it's different what mine sounds like, maybe than yours sounds like. What did it sound like that voice that, takes you to that drink, what was it telling you? Well, it was my
1: life partner, wasn't it? I mean, I had the one boyfriend and that was about it. And for the rest of the time, I was in a relationship with vodka. So it it had seduced me and it would creep up as soon as I left that treatment center of just like, just rationalize your way out of it or just do it. Or there would seemingly be no thought, but that would just be me tricking myself into getting myself to the liquor store. So what I would think, the reasoning behind my drinking so quickly after coming out of a facility was, one, rooted in the fact that I loved it. I loved Mm. it right back. And I wanted to be in that relationship. And I didn't want that relationship to end. I just wanted to be better in that relationship. I wanted to be able to do it so badly for so long like other people. And I could not come to terms with the fact that you cannot do that, Charlie. That was probably the biggest, Mm -hmm. loudest voice is, yes, you can. Yes, you can. This Mm -hmm. time will be different. And it's so cliche but it's so many of us, you know, that's how it is, is you get tricked into thinking that this is going to be the only thing that ever loves you back and that will ever consistently be there. So why would I step away from it? And that's flawed thinking, but you don't see that in the moment when your body and your mind are crying out for it. You know what I mean?
0: I do. Yeah, I do. And and uh, it's like, it's a destructive relation when you're so afraid of being abandoned, and, and like when that's a part of your story, you know, this thing that's terrible causes you to do terrible things, causes you to be terrible things, but it'll never leave. It'll always be there. And, you know, that you have this relationship, this consistency, that this substance brings you this, that it makes you feel. I mean, when we think about how when we're in a relationship with another human being, that, that other human being creates a state of feeling for us, right? Yes. We feel They change how we feel. And so does alcohol. So does so or drugs or or insert whatever. And for me, one of the most devastating times in my life was when alcohol when alcohol and drugs stopped showing up for me. Yes, exactly.
1: Because you become addicted to. The the chaos as well, you know, and you become addicted to the damage control and it's what you've built for your life and it's the only thing you know. So in this crazy world, I know how to navigate that. So then my shame starts to fuel me. But you're exactly right. The day comes July 7th, 2020, whenever mm-hmm. that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you fucking do now,
2: dude? Yeah.
0: Now, now it's, now it's, and that's so painful, right? Because that's the thing you've been, that's part yeah. of what you've relied on, what you've been running from is like, well, at least this works. It's, I, I do this and this happens. It's, it's a, it's a formula. It works every time, except one day it doesn't work. One day your brain doesn't shut off. The, K fuck radio in your head is still as loud as ever and it keeps going. And it is, you know, I say like we hired alcohol to do a job for us and, and it, you know, it, it, it stops working one day. Yeah. It's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's devastating because now you really have no coping skills and you're a complete shit show. So it's, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, (laughs) it's just, you know, that is just terrible. So you, you, 2020, so 2020, what is going on for you as like are you paying attention to what's going on in the world or are you so just encapsulated by your alcoholism that it's like on and off I was paying attention. Okay. So in from about
1: January to July 2020 there were pockets of sobriety for a couple weeks where I was present and I knew that something bad was happening but I didn't really realized the full extent of it until I completely became sober because I mean, I was working at Walmart in April of 2020 when they were, you know, just starting to enforce the the mask mandate. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is weird, but not, investing any sort of time into it because i was still white knuckling like Mm. my identity and trying to stay sober so i was like okay Mm -hmm. well the world is just like me now it's just this is this is probably what's going to happen everything's just going to fall apart and then i can just (laughs) fuck it fuck (laughs) it i'll just start drinking again
0: yeah right that's an interesting thing is like the world that's an interesting way to put it the world is just like me now that's yeah that's
1: how i felt though i was like this is perfect now you guys know what the fuck i've been going through for 11 years (laughs)
0: But I've, been, I've been having an emotional pandemic, fuckers, I, for over a decade. Oh God, yeah. You're like, yeah. Well, at least you yeah. guys have masks. I um, know. Cover <laughs> that shit up. Mine's just blaring right in front of my face. Yeah, exactly. This shit no. does not wash off. No, it
1: doesn't. It There's doesn't.
0: no sanitizer for this. So you you get so you get sober and July of 2020. Congratulations. You you at least ha- have a year, right? Or yes, almost a year. Yes. Congratulations. Uh, a little over awesome. a year. Yep. So do you start to like, are you so focused on not drinking that you, you kind of, uh, blot out what's going on in the world or is that, is that affecting you at all?
1: No, it, it didn't. I was so focused on staying mm-hmm. sober mm-hmm. And, and then I switched jobs in August to work for an RV dealership in my hometown. And I just became focused on, you know, Just going to work, staying sober, kind of rebuilding the relationships with my family that I had just destroyed over the years and being back home with everyone. I was like, this is such a great opportunity for me now to like rebuild my life that the awareness of the gravity didn't hit me until I visited a friend um, in February of 2021. Like I became aware once I got sober that things were bad, but I didn't realize until I visited him um, in twenty twenty one just how devastating the disease was. And then I, I looked a little further because I thought to myself, I was not paying attention to the news. I thought, like, I wonder if people are drinking more. And then all you have to do is <laughs> Google that. Oh yeah. And there's all this research. And this so was like much. in the middle. Yeah, it was insane. This was in the middle of me writing my book. And I was just like, oh, wow, like I didn't realize that the alcohol sales and the rate had gone up so much. And then you hear about, I think here recently was the most overdoses that have ever been um, recorded. And it was just like, I I didn't, I knew that there were a lot of us out there hurting. I didn't know that so many more began to hurt like us during the pandemic, that the pandemic really just ushered in a new opportunity for addiction to thrive. And it did. And so I was just like, this is terrible. Now you're fucking with my people. Like, this is...
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it did. It it did. And young women... Fifty uh, liver liver disease as a result of drinking cirrhosis went up fifty percent during the pandemic. That's just, insane. Sh- just like numbers are, were, that are just truly unimaginable. I was I was at the time I was on the news all the time as you know an addiction expert talking about what was oh, going yes. going on because people were like this. I was talking about. Alcohol sales and, and cirrhosis and overdoses and all this stuff. The amount of people who relapsed in our community mm-hmm. who had I knew a woman who I'd known forever, yoga teacher, super cool, sober 25 years, family, the whole gig. So sponsored, you know, 50 women I had known yeah. in recovery started drinking and died. Like I mean, oh. things were things you're just like, what? you know, inexplicable, except oh that gosh. this was going on. So when I hear that people are getting sober during the pandemic, and yeah. I saw a lot of people through through Lion Rock getting sober, it's amazing to me because it it brings this other side to what I was seeing, right? Because of the, mm-hmm. this, because of what my life looked like. And I met this, I went to a um, young people in a, a Conference and I I spoke this weekend in uh, this last oh, weekend cool. in uh, Tucson. Right on. Yeah, and uh, I felt very old at this young people conference. Oh um, shit! And uh, and I met this woman there, Jill. Shout out to Jill, who said she listens to the podcast every day. To which she said, "I listen to you every day." And I immediately texted my husband and I said, "There are people out there who want to listen to me every day." And he said, "They only have to listen for an hour." Um, <laughs> I was like, see. But Jill was saying that she got sober during the pandemic and that she all she was telling saying that she used podcasts. She used, you know, podcasts yes. as meetings and, and going to different meetings and really just an interesting shift in mindset. My focus was on all the people we were losing and all the instances of addiction coming up. But there was this whole other crew of you guys that were getting sober. That were coming in. Yeah
1: yeah coming in yeah it was and it was and I felt that too I said that actually to my very close family a lot throughout the year because we became more and more proud each month mm. that we could celebrate and so it was just like uh, it would take a pandemic for you bub It's what they it's <laughs> what they call me is bub but I'm like it would take a pandemic oh, for you God, to get your so shit good. together and I'm like I know it's so crazy like everyone's just falling apart here I am writing a book like what but it was I love it I knew, yes. And I felt very honored. I knew how special that was. And I knew that that was bigger than me, that I was able to have that moment that I had in late June and and stay sober throughout all of this and, and have the capability really to sneak around and hide my drinking if I wanted to, and, and to have to confront that and work with, work with that was like a very interesting challenge. Um, so I, I understood the gravity of what was happening for those of us that were getting sober during the yeah. pandemic that, yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah,
0: You, um, therapy, therapy changed the game for you. You, mm-hmm. that's when you talk about doing, we always talk about doing the work, right? So the work in your case, what did that look like?
1: So for me, the work is very much, it can kind of break down into just three things is, a lot of CBT, DBT, and automatic thought records. A lot of automatic thought records.
0: Okay, so for people who don't know, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. Those are types of cognitive... Rather, those are types of therapy.
1: Yes, yes. They're much more focused on like you're having a thought that's probably not a healthy thought for you. You know, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to do a bad behavior or action based on this thought. So you're just going to really kind of play this thought out, the pros and the cons, and then you're going to react in a much more rational, calm manner by implementing the the steps that these types of therapy uh, present you with. And then automatic thought records, yes, are just kind of where you're forcing yourself in that moment to write it down so that you are in that moment and you're dealing with that shit and then you get through it in that moment. Um, those saved me a lot. Meditation and just the sound of the singing bowl. Um, it's another really big one. Yes. Like it just, I just had a sound bath a couple weeks ago for the first time and it was life changing. So very much the like going out into nature and I'm a country boy at heart. So just being out in the woods and listening to that and the singing bowl and just meditating was the second thing that really, really helped me. And then journaling or writing or fueling some sort of creative outlet. So for me, it's something artistic. For somebody else, it may be working on a car, you know, but those three things are what I really had to do in order to get sober and underpinning all of those, of course, was all of the knowledge I had gotten from Smart Recovery and Mm -hmm. from AA and NA and CA uh, smart recovery is just another type of therapy it's a more cerebral approach um, for addiction i guess you could kind of say right it implements a lot of cbt and dbt yeah
0: yeah and it's a support group but it it's free support group yes. smart support, recovery yes. it's it's um it's not religious and um, there's no there's no uh type of religiosity in it at all which is why some people often deviate from 12 step to smart recovery and it's available for free online. If people are curious about smart recovery meetings. Yes. Yes, it is.
1: And so those like, that's, that's really, I mean, I said, I think in the end of my book, I was like, I just have to make a gumbo of all the shit I've learned. And just like, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's how I did it. But those three main things and um, yeah, meditation is another thing that has just changed my life in so many ways. And I think I never thought I could do it. I'm just a boy from the sticks. And then here I am able to meditate. So I think there's kind of an aversion of being scared of it. But if you try it, it can really change your
0: life. What you wrote a book in this time, it's called At Least I'm Not the Frog, a zany memoir of alcoholism and recovery. What does At Least I'm Not the Frog
1: mean? All right.
0: Oh, in the boiling water?
1: no so it's well at least i'm not that frog too but um i don't know about that frog but i don't want to be it either um uh no so it's a story that i tell uh pretty i i make you wait in the book but um i'll break it down for you here so basically in about 2018 2017 i can't remember the exact date i'd have to look in the book but anyways um I had just gotten out of a psychiatric ward. I had just been arrested and faked a seizure to get into that psychiatric ward. And my car was impounded. As we do. As is natural. (laughs) As we do. Typical Um, Thursday in March. (laughs) Whatever month it was. But yeah, I had just all that had happened. And I had driven home my busted ass car that still had the impound, like, riding on the windshield home. And I was sitting on my front porch, smoking a cigarette with my aunt Trila, who's just been like my rock through all of this. And I was sitting beside her and I was like, Oh my God, I just got a third DUI. Like I'm going to prison. Everything's fucked. I can't go to prison. And we, she was like quiet for a minute. And then she looked over and underneath my car tire there was this snake that was like wrapped around this frog and it was eating it and i just looked over at it and i was like well at least i'm not that frog and in saying that i i didn't really think anything about it i just really thought like that's cool like shit is really fucked up for you but you're not dead so at least you're not that frog years a couple a year or so later that would swim back to Mm me When I was walking down the street, I was really inebriated on a number of substances, Uh, but I was trying to get back home to Clinton for this last time of when I got sober. And I was walking down the street, and I was all bloody and gashed up, and I'd fallen off a bus, and it was just—I was a shit show, man, as I regularly was. As we do, uh, (laughs) yeah. As we do, yeah.
2: I'd fallen off a bus.
0: As we do.
1: As we do, yeah. Yeah, that's a great. Anyways, but. I, in in walking and thinking just how terrible I was and what a shitty person I was and how much I hated myself, that came back to me and was like, well, at least you're not that frog. And mm. in walking, I was like, okay, that's right, boy. We got to mm-hmm. get you somewhere for the night because you can't be sleeping outside because shit's fucked up in this world. So that moment was really meaningful to me. And then when I started writing and I didn't have a title and then it just like one morning I woke up and I was like, at least a dog, you have a title, bro. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll make people look and be like, what? Yeah. What is yeah. a frog?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, at least I'm not that frog is the pinch of hope. Right. Yeah. We can, that we might get like, how, Low, do you have to go right for like that to be you know oh hopeful yeah. right? But yeah. <laughs> sometimes like, you want to hear something inspirational. Um, but but, no but like, but like, <laughs> right, We have to find like, like at least there's still the opportunity for hope, right? That's yeah. what that's what that sounds like to me. Like there's, yeah. that 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 book is closed for the frog, and there's tiny possibility of hope, and sometimes it's just finding like the, at least there's maybe hope for me. Like there's, you know, the story is not over even when we think it's over.
1: Yeah. Even when you think that it you're just doomed. Yeah. There's just no way out of it.
0: Yeah. That's, that's most likely not the
1: case if you just keep trying.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, 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 so many things in my life, I tell this to my sponsees. So many things in my life, I'm like, well, people always leave or things always fall, right? Like these, these ideas that I've received over my lifetime, these maladaptive ideas, right? And yeah. so I am relying on historical information about future or present people's behavior, right? Oh, <laughs> people always leave me or, you know, things always change, right? And I' so in my head, I'm applying that to present and future. Well, except that things always work out. And that's also historically accurate. But I tend to not apply that to the present and the future. I tend to not acknowledge, oh, Ashley, hey, wake the fuck up. Things always work have always worked out. They are always going to work out. When can you name an instance where things did not work out even when they went really? Really badly. Well, they did. So I have to remember to apply that historical information that I like to apply, which is, you know, people are always mean or boys are always this or blah, 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 blah. Also apply the it always works out, even when I don't know how it's going to end or what's going to happen. Because that's my great. Every time I don't know what's going to happen, my assumption is that it's going to be bad. Yes. Right? If I don't know what's going to happen, if I haven't, if I can't. If I don't think I can predict what's going to happen, it's automatically bad. It never occurs to me that if I don't know what's going to happen, it might be good. Right. My right. brain's like, nope, the whole fucking world's that. You don't know what's going to yes. happen. You, you, you get called into a meeting, right? Like you, hey, Ashley, we need to talk. Can you talk at this time? Right. I'm like, oh, I'm fired. fired. I'm fired. I'm going to be broken happening. on crack in a day. Yeah it never occurs to me something good might happen. Yeah. And so I have had to really work on rewiring that and going, okay, if I'm going to apply historical knowledge, it needs to be accurate, which means that things always work out even when I think it's the end of the world. And that has helped me to, uh, that is one of those skills that has helped me to rely on you know, the universe, a higher power, historical information, whatever you want to call it, rely on and believe that it's going to be okay, even when my alcoholism, my heart, my blood pressure wants to tell me otherwise.
1: No, exactly. And it's like, you can't just, you know, and you tell yourself, I'm just being a realist. I'm just being prepared, (laughs) you know? And it's like, no, no, you can't just throw out the good with right. the bad, just because the bad was really bad, you know, right. like that's not right. how it works,
0: yeah, right, like, right, like be accurate, bitch, yeah, you know? <laughs> yes. you're not, you're just zoning
1: in, and I do the yeah. same thing too. I'm all, and that's what I always tell myself, like, well, I'm very prepared,
0: yeah, yeah, like, exactly. No,
1: you're just hyper focused on truth. one thing. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just hyper, and when we focus on that, it gets more intense. And when we focus on the positive or the good, that gets more intense. And yes, it, it, it's really a helpful thing to go. Oh, I'm just scared because I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm assuming it's going to be bad. What would happen if I assumed it was going to be good?
1: And how much more could I manifest if I just fed into that energy, you know? And that was, yes, that's definitely something that I had to start tapping into as I became sober, too. I was like, which wolf are you going to feed, boy? Mm -hmm. Like, are we going to tap into the positive energy and be hopeful and choose happiness and all of that? Or are we going to continue to feed this wolf that's brought you nothing but death and destruction, (laughs) you know?
0: So, right. Hmm. It's funny how that's a hard choice. Um, and it was for, I know it is. (laughs) Yeah. But now it's like, you silly boy, come on into, you know, when you've been drinking as hard as you were drinking, as hard as I was drinking, there is, there is cognitive damage that happens that makes it difficult to make good decisions. And so I do want to say that for people listening that, you know, there is, data that shows in the first 60 days of someone sobriety who has been drinking heavily and using heavily that their brain is not starting to come back online until like not you know in 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 scans the brain does not start to come back online till 60 days so you know, and that again, that's depending on how much you're drinking. but let's let's just assume let at, at best, it's thirty. And it is very, very difficult for people to control impulse. And so you are working against a brain that is been hijacked. And there is an element of that piece and retraining your brain and some neuro damage that we have done. So I do want people to understand it's not just like, Oh, making a different decision, just make a different decision. There is, there is neuroscience that shows that this is a difficult thing to do. As you're sober longer, it becomes so much easier because your brain is less and less hijacked. But in the beginning, you know, th- it's really important to have give yourself some grace, use some of those tools and understand that your brain is in a it is in a state of hijack and we're trying to undo that.
1: Yes. And I I love that you talk about that, Ashley, because I feel like those of us that are addicts and alcoholics, when we visit these treatment centers or these detox facilities or whatever it is, we get a lot of explanation as to why our brains are doing the things we're doing. You know, But that doesn't always translate to the family members or the friends. Mm -hmm. That knowledge isn't always passed on to them. Mm -hmm. So it remains to them this conversation about choice. And it's like, we need to find a way to get this information to them as well. Now there is, you know, there's lots of resources, but it's like, how do you make them want to go (laughs) look for it? And I think it's just about just talking about it. The more that it's talked about, then the more people might be prone to, to look into what you've just said, because it is so important. And that's why when I said, you know, those first few weeks, I had to just, I was a live wire. I was an emotional live wire because my brain was hijacked and my brain was like, we don't know, this is not normal. No, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to function like this, but my heart and my soul was telling me like, we just, gotta make it through dude and that's when you do you just have to you have a lot of grace with yourself and you have to be so forgiving that if you if that is where your intent lies if you're really trying to get sober and you relapse you did not fail you just relapsed and now you just get back up and you try getting sober again that was So important to me to be honest and authentic in my story. And like I'm not going to give you this Mm -hmm. whole dissertation on how wonderful my life was when I got sober. I'm going to tell you in great detail about the 11 years I spent busted, broke, ashamed, because you need to hear that that's okay if that's your story too, because you will get there as long as you're trying and, and you have grace with yourself and you forgive yourself and you love yourself. And that's not hard to, to do or learn either, but, um, it can be attained even by the most depraved of us all. because <laughs> I was,
0: <laughs> yeah, I I love it. I love it. It's so important. Just don't stop trying, you know, don't that's stop. that don't just stop. don't stop trying yeah. how uh, you're right. However busted you are. And I've, that has been my story in recovery, right? Because yeah guess what? I'm not not an alcoholic now that I don't have alcohol, right? Yes. I'm still this crazy ass bitch trying to get this sh- shit together 15 years later, right? Just it's different things. I'm just not in a blackout right yeah.
1: now. <laughs> totally. So totally. I can be a little more present. Totally. Now I'm remembering I'm everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: so it's, it's don't stop trying. Don't give up. You fall down, you get back up again. You fall down, you get back. And that, you know, that is that takes um, courage and it takes perseverance it, it is not easy but that is the difference between the people who you know make it and the people who don't is that some of us just will be damned if we're going to stop trying and i think that that that's that's your story you just did not stop you did not stop trying and eventually it worked eventually yes yeah. it worked yeah. and and it's
1: just i think that that saying that we hear so much in the aa rooms of um, it's just, it's everybody's ready at a different time. You know, they just weren't ready. And you just, when your time comes, you will be ready, but yeah, just, just keep trying. And I used to, I used to not think that that was true too. I used to hear that in the rooms. I've loved the rooms for years, but the rooms used to piss me off and (laughs) frustrate me because I would be like, where is this shit? And you've only got four months sober. And what are you talking about? How are you feeling Mm -hmm. like this? And where is it for me? And but I just, you know, then you get over yourself and you learn that, like, no, it's just it wasn't your time, you know. Your time came, and and when that time comes, you you just be so excited that you cling to it and you grab a hold of it, like you grab a hold of that pipe or that bottle or whatever, you know. You just like you go full force with your sobriety and 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 repurpose that time that you spent mm-hmm. busted.
0: Yeah, they say if you're a real alcoholic, every real alcoholic gets a sobriety date. It's just whether or not they're alive to see it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So where can people find your book? So if you are
1: interested in purchasing my memoir, you can go out to Amazon. And the easiest way is just to search At Least I'm Not the Frog, Charlie Gray, or At Least I'm Not the Frog, Zany Memoir of Alcoholism and Recovery. Right now, let me just check. It was trending number one new release in alcoholism and twelve step recovery. And Woo-woo. it looks like Yeah, yeah, and it looks like as of this recording, it is still trending number one in those. So you can also awesome. go to those lists and find it. Yep, but that's where you would purchase it is on Amazon as an ebook or a paperback. Two ninety yes. nine.
0: $2.99. Two, no, I was gonna do the same thing. $2.99 for ebook, $8.99 paperback. Right on, yes, perfect. Woo And can people follow? Do you have social media? Do people follow you, or where can people contact you?
1: Yes, you can follow me at um, Charlie Gray under my author page on Facebook, or you can go to at least I'm not the and follow my blog there. On that blog was started in June of this year. And so what that blog really follows and gives information on is I give a lot of information on sober living, on how to know if you're checking out a legitimate sober living facility, because I've been through the ringer with sober living. I talk a lot about AA and NA. I talk a lot about how I've maintained my sobriety and clarity. So yeah, you can visit me there.
0: Awesome. So, uh, and, Charlie is C-H-R-L-I-E and Gray is G-R-A-Y.
1: Yes. Thank you. Just thank you for specifying. Because whenever you search on Amazon, it's like, did you mean at least I'm not the frog Charlie Gray, G-R-E-Y? And I'm like, no, I did not. <laughs> no, bitch. <laughs> yeah. I meant my name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Listen, Alexa, you need to calm down right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, I enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much. And uh, let's stay in touch.
1: Yes, definitely. This was amazing, Ashley. Thank you so much for, that, for what you do and your program and your content. And you're so fun. This was, Yeah, this was amazing. So I really appreciate you. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.Life. LionRock.Life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life